Turning back in the Word of the Lord today to the book of Romans. I know we read from Psalm 14 and 15, but now to the book of Romans and the chapter 1 and the verse 19 and 20. Taking the subject this morning, does God exist? Does God exist? Romans 1 verse 19 and the verse 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. With God's word open before us, we'll bow together in a further word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for Thy mercy and for Thy grace. And Father, we pray that as we've turned to the Word of God and in the climate in which we live today and operate, in particular here in Northern Ireland, uh, given what has been revealed over the past week, uh, we pray that I will guide us in our meditation today, that I will help us in pronouncing the Word of God the verdict on thine own person. We thank the Lord for all of the evidences that we have, and we can reach out to Him, and we can scoop up those evidences, and we can analyze them. We can sift through them. We can examine them from every possible conceivable angle, and we thank Thee that it comes back, and it all tells us that the God whom we adore is not a figment of imagination, is not some misguided, misplaced feeling that has been somehow injected into our hearts. But as we've just sung, He lives, and we are absolutely sure that He does. And so we pray that Thou will speak to our hearts today, that Thou will guide us in our meditation in Thy Word we pray in our Savior's all-prevailing and precious name. Amen. Now that the results of the 2021 Northern Ireland Census have been released, the popular headline, I know you will have felt it as well, it was going to be very predictable. And we had it in many places. The Times would have been very typical of all the other news outlets that are now, they said, more Catholics than Protestants in Northern Ireland. And they give the figures 45.7% to 43.5%. Then the next line in their article said, analysis of responses from last year's census recorded a century after the creation of Northern Ireland in 1921, found that a tipping point in the religious makeup of the country had been passed in the decade since the previous census, that being in 2011. Of course, the real issue is not the way in which the headlines are trying to project it. The fact is, when you examine, dig below the numbers there and check what happened 10 years ago in the figures released then, the census data released this week does not show 
a massive increase in the Roman Catholic community. It's actually only up a fraction of a percentage point. And so all of the talk, and there will be much of it gathering more steam than usual, all the talk of a border pull, the result of that is by no means a foregone conclusion. But it was the third paragraph in the Times article and other articles as well, where you had to dig down to get the real story coming out of these census figures. And they said, it also found, however, that Northern Ireland is becoming more secular, with a large increase in the number of people who say they have no religion. And actually, the number of people identifying as being non-religious has staggeringly almost doubled in only 10 years. And so when they were asked, what religion, religious denomination, or body do you belong to, 331,000 virtually ticked none. That was an 80% increase over that 10-year period, coming down to figures here, another percentage, a growth we have in that area, declaring themselves to be non-religious from 10% of the population 10 years ago to 17% today. So what's the real story? The real story in the census figures is actually the paganization of Ulster. And that appears sadly to be more profound when you look at the Unionist Protestant areas. And when you look at the map and you see the clusters there in Antrim and in Dine in particular, where in the darkest shades, over 20% of the people in those areas stated, we have and we follow no religion at all. Now, my suspicion is that this is most likely the case as well with those describing themselves as Roman Catholic on the census. But one of my friends on Facebook has put it like this, reading massive political ramifications into the census is foolish. Seeing the census results as cause for prayer is not. And of course, we are reminded and prompted by the solemn reminder that Samus pens in Psalm 9 and verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all those nations that forget God. But these results have prompted me to ask some questions. How many in this number declaring themselves to be non-religious today, have been gobbling down over these years all of the gender confusion that is going on around about us, and they have grabbed at this world of inverted morality whereby we have in our land today people standing up and declaring that which is good to be evil, and that which is evil they're parading as good. For many of those have actually slid along the pews in evangelical churches in their day. And out of those meetings, where they heard words of light and words of life, they have gone into the darkness and the dreadfulness of that terrible area where the devil's doubts and disbelief 
are reigning supreme, and where the question always and only is, yea, hath God said? For many of them cite as their excuse today the reason why, you know, we have ended up where we have professing atheism, determined and not afraid to declare it that we are non-religious, is, you know, because of our experience of the inconsistencies of Christians that we are living among. Because many of them will have seen the hypocrisy close up in families that they belong to, in streets where they live, and they have concluded, if that's what Christianity is, I want nothing to do with it. And yes, I know, there is going to be a percentage of these people saying that they are irreligious who are going to be converted. That's undoubted, and I pray that percentage is large. But the taste, the sour taste in their mouths of badly behaved Christians, well, until they're touched by a loving heart and wakened by kindness, they'll be wallowing in their state currently of being the non-religious, wanting nothing to do with church with the Bible, or with God. You know what the frightening fact is, though, that most people live today as if God doesn't exist. Their lives tell us we don't really care whether or not there is a God because we're living our lives without any reference to Him at all. We are not interested in anything to do with Him, and they're living as if God had died. Way back in the 1960s, a host of articles and books appeared, and they were all announcing God is dead. Looking back on those days, it's pretty certain that the media engineered, coordinated that event. And maybe you were only waking up to know the power of the media to change and to twist and to spin and to lie rather than simply report what is actually happening. For instance, a well-known newspaper editor is once alleged to have told his staff to get busy covering the war in, China, in Cuba. But the reason the war in Cuba, those astonished staff members replied, well, he said, we can soon change that. God exists. People believe in him. Well, we'll soon change that, appears to have been their guiding philosophy. John Robinson published a very confused book. His thoughts were by no means clear at all, honest to God, in 1963. And the Sunday Observer, among other news outlets, jumped on that book and they said, our image of God must go. It wasn't exactly what Robinson was saying, but that's what they wanted it to say. But these reports of the death of God have turned out to be rather premature, and it's obvious if we trace from there to now the spread of biblical Christianity, for example, in Africa, in South America, even on the continents of Asia since that time, in Iran even today, that God is still very much alive. And there is just no way that the church of Jesus Christ has been left with the corpse of God on its hands. Anybody 
who was first-hand experience of the living God cannot think of him as dead. God is living, very much alive. A far-from-dead God continues to excite and inspire a new generation of believers. And we can sing today as we have done, He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. It's neither sensible nor safe to live as if God has died. Because there's an abundance of evidence out there all around us that is all with one voice testifying to the fact that God is very much alive, and we need to face up to that evidence. Others don't merely live as if God didn't exist. They boldly say that He does not exist, and they say, we're proud of this, because we are identifying here as atheists. And you will have heard some of the people after the census results came out, and boldly, I am proud to be an atheist is essentially what they were saying. Now, a genuine atheist is actually still a very rare animal. But there are those who say, I don't believe in God, and that's the end of the matter. Well, it's not actually. Because whether you believe in something or not, whether you believe it's false or it's true, it doesn't make it so. If God does not exist, no amount of belief will produce him. But if he does exist, no amount of disbelief will displease or dispose of him. And the fool can, as he does in Psalm 14 and 1, he can stand up and he can say, there is no God in his heart. And he can say that a million times a day if he wants. That does not change God's existence. Men can shoot up their arrows at heaven, but those arrows will only fall back on their own heads. Unbelief does not alter facts. Pharaoh said in Exodus 5 and 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And next thing, Pharaoh got such a wake-up call that he'd never seen in his life before. One, two, three, the whole ten plagues came cascading upon him. But Pharaoh's lack of knowledge, lack of belief in God, did not stop God from being God. And God proved he existed. And he was all-powerful, and Pharaoh was not. The favorite line with the atheist is, I only believe what I can see. And you know, there can't be a God because I can't see. Can you show me God? Now, what kind of a threadbare argument is that? There are many things in everyday life that you and I cannot see. And yet we don't question their existence because we know they're there. We can't see the air, but we know it's there. We know that we can't live without it. We can't see the wind, but we know it's there because we can see the effects of the wind as it ruffles the water or the lake and it blows through the trees. We can't see electricity, but we know it exists in these days when the price is skyrocketing as well. And we can certainly feel it if we're unfortunate enough to get an electric shock. An atheist, don't be daunted by his proud words because he has a tough time justifying his opinion. To say there is no God means that you are claiming that you have enough knowledge to know there is 
definitely no God, but an atheist, and nobody can ever have such knowledge to be certain that there is no God. They would have to know everything, because if there is anything outside of the realm of their knowledge, then that something outside of the realm of their knowledge could include God. An atheist would have to be everywhere, in and out of the universe, all at the one time, because if there's anywhere that he or she cannot be, God could be there. No atheist then can claim total knowledge. So atheism is self-refuting. Knowing everything, being everywhere, there's only one person who knows and does that. That's God. So no one can prove there is no God. Now, I'm not saying that I can take God and put him into a test tube or make him the subject of a maths equation and analyze him like that. But then I can't do that with love either, can I? And that does not mean that love doesn't exist. But when I read in Hebrews 11 verse 3 and verse 6, I'll see that accepting he exists is a matter of faith. Though through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so the things which are seen are not, were not made of things which do appear. Verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Oh, so it's all about faith then. Yes, it is. But it's not blind, it's not blinkered faith that tells us there is a God. That faith that we have, it holds on to this evidence, that evidence, another evidence that is bolstering our faith, providing a foundation for faith, those personal evidences, those biblical evidences, those evidences in the natural world all around us, and they're all saying there is a God. We're looking in the remainder of our message this morning at three of those evidences. One is the construction of this world. It tells me there is a God. How did this world come about? Was it simply the result of a big cosmic accident out there somewhere, or a chain of these cosmic accidents, or an explosion that was unregulated that people have dubbed the Big Bang? You know, these theories come and these theories are modified and then eventually they're dropped without any fanfare at all. And it used to be we had a steady state theory and then we had the Big Bang theory. And I'm sure there'll be uh, some changes. There are many modifications already, but there'll be a plasma theory or something similar. It's just whatever is next coming on the conveyor belt, on the line of modern atheistical thought, whatever they can dream up. And they try to shoehorn into the scenario, anything you know will do. Just so long as we are not asked to accept the fact of an almighty, intelligent, gracious creator, anything will do. Anything. As long as we're not asked to believe in the existence of God. A biologist once commented that the likelihood of this world being produced by chance is about as statistically possible as an explosion in a printing factory delivering the complete works of William Shakespeare. I reckon you'd have bombed out quite a few printing factories 
and you'd have demolished millions of pounds worth before you'd ever get the complete works of William Shakespeare. In fact, there wouldn't be a printing factory left in the world and you still wouldn't have those volumes. So was this world the result of an accident? Clearly not. And if it isn't, it must have a creator, a powerful source outside of itself, and we call that source God. No matter where I look, right through this universe, I see marks of intelligent design everywhere. And like to admit it or not, where you have such intricate, intelligent design, there must, of necessity, be a designer. A controversy broke out in January of 2005 when Richard Sternberg, he was a prominent researcher in the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, and he published the first peer-reviewed article to get into a technical biology journal that led out a case bolstered by evidence for intelligent design. And they were all over him and castigating him, shunned by his colleagues, left him with his scientific career hanging by a thread. Because of what he did, he got an article by a Stephen Meyer who held a Cambridge University doctorate in biology. And he repeated that article. And it was critical of certain major parts of Darwin's theory. And they were saying, you know, Darwin's theory, it cannot possibly explain how so many different animal types just sprang into existence in a relatively short space of time. In Earth's history, they know it as the Cambrian explosion. And what they're saying is, for Darwin to be right, his mechanism would have required so much more time for all of the information that was needed to be generated. And they're saying, therefore, intelligent design offers a far better explanation. This theory holds that the complex features of all living organisms, the eye, for example, we'll mention that again, are better explained by this designing intelligence. And they weren't even calling that God. And still it caused an absolute uproar. Well, are they right? Do we have elements of design all around us? What about our environment? If conditions on this earth where we're living today had been the slightest bit different to what they are, life would have been impossible. If the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere was greater, plants and hydrocarbons would burn up too easily. If it was less, then the animal life wouldn't have any air to breathe. Our environment, no matter how we view it, it shows signs of meticulous design. In hot countries... We've got a bit of a war going on between bees who are fighting the hornets who were fighting them. 
And those hornets have the rather annoying habit of coming along, haunting the hives of the bees, biting off the heads of the bees. And the bees come out of the hive in a rush, and they surround the attacking hornet. And they move their wings so fast that a huge amount of heat is generated. And when the temperature then, generated by that means, reaches 46 degrees Celsius, the hornets die, but if that temperature were to be ramped up another two degrees to 48, then the bees would also die, but they don't. That speaks of design, not accident or chance, and those kind of scenarios can be multiplied ad infinitum. We might consider the moving of the stars and the planets so ordered, so precise, that Greenwich Mean Time has worked out from them the structure of freezing that allows fish to breathe under the ice. A bat's radar, a bird's migratory ability, the ability of the whole body to function, the strange world of bacterium, all of these follow patterns that defy any idea that they might have all come about through chance and coincidence over a long period of time. No, they show the evidence of very careful design. How can we account for all of that? Where's the sufficient cause behind all of these things who made them like this? When you have that kind of design, you have a designer. Now, Charles Darwin had an eye problem, as in evolutionary processes, trial and error over millions of years, they brought about human vision as we know it, likely story, and Charles Darwin knew it was a tall story, and he said, to suppose that the eye, and then he goes into detail about it, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. This optical instrument stumped him completely, defied his theory, but he stubbornly plodded on with his theory of evolution. And not only the eye, but virtually nothing was adding up. But he kept persisting because it closed out the only other alternative, which is there is a creator God. And we can't of that was his philosophy. This amazing universe around us, the world in which we live, it demands a master designer, an architect, an engineer, an artist. Why not face the facts and say it's God? David was right when 3,000 years ago he said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And we read today in Romans 1, the verse 19 and 20, Paul saying, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world. That's where you see evidence of him are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So all creation unites in a chorus, and that chorus is God exists. God is wise. God is almighty. That's one reason, the construction of this world. The second reason, the constitution of man in this world. The Bible tells us all men are aware of his being. 
Because God has stamped his image upon man's soul. Sin, of course, has shattered and disfigured that image, but God has stamped his image upon man's soul. And he has also inscribed his law in man's conscience. Romans 2, verse 14 and 15, you'll read about it there. See, man has the ability to reason, he has intelligence. We can be creative. We can rearrange objects and things in different ways. We're able to make our minds up, feed information into our brains about alternative choices that are open to us. And on the basis of information we put in, we arrive at a conclusion and a decision. We are rational creatures. For example, you had a decision to make this morning. You had various options. You could have stayed at home and laying on in bed, and I'm glad you didn't. You could have sat in front of the computer or television and done your homework or played a computer game, and I'm glad those who were here didn't. You could have gone to the shops. You could have strolled around the local park, options that many people take. Or you could have come here, and I'm thankful that you did. You had options, and with those options in mind, you reasoned it out, made a decision to come here. We are rational creatures. Our minds are a little like a computer. You program the computer so that it analyzes pieces of information, and having analyzed the information, arrives at conclusions and an outcome, and the accuracy of the outcome is going to be determined by the way in which you program that computer. Program it at random, and the results will be crazy. When you talk about Oh, I've got confidence in the ability of my computer to handle data. What you're really saying is that I have confidence in the computer program to do it, and ultimately back of that, in the ability of the programmer who wrote that program, there is, in other words, a greater intelligence at work behind the operation of that computer and that computer program. Is it not reasonable to assume that underlying our reason is somebody else's reason, somebody bigger than you and I, in much the same way as human intelligence lies behind a good computer program. This doesn't prove, of course, that God exists in itself, but it points to God as the one who has given to you and me the faculty of reasoning, given us intelligence. Not only intelligence, we have conscience. Man has a moral regulator. All of us make moral judgments. We choose between what is right and what is wrong. Way back at the end of the Second World War, when the first photographs came out of Auschwitz, that Nazi concentration camp, and when a world largely that didn't know what had been happening, when they saw the pictures, people were outraged. They knew it was wrong, intuitively knew it was wrong, without the need for argument or counseling or somebody debating or discussing. This is wrong. Where do those moral signals come from? Are they the result of the law of the land? Some would say that right means to live according to the laws of the land. Well, let's stay without switch. Those executioners in Auschwitz, they were after all acting legally in what they did, but that does not 
make what they did right. Well, some argue, well, you know, the moral decisions and choices we make are always born out of the greater, the greatest good for the greatest number. And yeah, those executioners and knights which could say, yeah, that's absolutely right. That's what we were doing. We were simply liquidating minority groups such as Jews and gypsies and others so that the well-being of the majority, the mass would be enhanced. What I'm saying is these arguments fall. It's not good enough to say that morality is something that we humans invented. No, we didn't. Deeply embedded in us are ideas of right and wrong built into the system, programmed into us. Where do they come from? Conscience. Who installed that? God. That wonderful little gadget ticking away inside of us like a bit of a radar system that is locking on to evil and alerting us. It is a Coaching. American theologian Robert Dabney said, this faculty is a most ingenious spiritual contrivance adjusted to a beneficent end, the promotion of virtuous acts and repression of wicked. Now, if there's an inner law, that suggests a lawgiver. And atheists always struggle on this ground. Why is there morality? You see, when I read Paul and I back up to a previous verse to the one which we read today, Romans 1 and verse 18, he says that men by nature, they hold the truth of God in unrighteousness. In other words, they know what the truth is, but they hold it down. They suppress it. They try to deny it, but they cannot escape it. No matter how much effort they put into suppressing the truth, they know God is omnipotent, and they know God is holy. They know they are sinful and in desperate need of a sin, a toning sacrifice. They know that they possess immortal souls, and that they one day will meet God in judgment. Indicators in the human constitution that point to God's existence. Have you noticed that man right across the world has a desire for worship? Has this capacity? Man is a religious creature. No matter where you look in the globe, you've got religion of some shape and form. Every tribe, every race, there's no dispute. They are trying to find God, to worship some being who is greater than themselves. And of course, all along the way, man has fallen into trap after trap after trap of false worship. And we have this plethora of cults and isms going about today and always have been. And man is conducting his search in extremely strange, even revolting ways. But the fact remains, there is something deep down in human beings that is searching for that infinite being who is God. Paul goes up onto Mars Hill in the city of Athens, and it's all awash with the philosophies of the day, and they want to entertain each other, and they want to cut their teeth and masticate on new knowledge here. And Paul is saying, Acts 17, the verse 23, records it, for as I pass by and beheld your devotions. They were worshiping something in the middle of all their delightful knowledge. 
I beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And even in those parts of the world where, for example, communism has been a major force, Islam has been a major force, and they were trying to take out the worship of the true God, what did they find? It cannot be driven out. For God is placed in our hearts by the stroke of the Creator. He has made us religious beings built to worship Him. The construction of this world is an evidence that God exists. The constitution of man in this world is an evidence that God exists. And finally and briefly, the contents of the Bible for this world, another compelling reason for belief in God's existence. Now, let me make it clear, and you know what I'm, what I'm going to say here, where I'm going to go with this. The Bible is not a book of apologetics in the sense that it doesn't set out to make a case for the existence of God. It doesn't make an attempt to prove that. It just declares He exists. First line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No argument, no negotiation, not asking for your opinion as God, just telling you what happened. This is revelation. Revelation. He's the sovereign creator of all things. And the rest of the book, it speaks continually of God. There's no doubt about it. In fact, we have references to God or Lord 10,875 times in our English translation. And this book tells us everything we need to know about Him. And you know what the important thing is and what this world has lost sight of and what those people in the Northern Ireland census figures who were saying 17% of them, we have no religion whatsoever. God is as he has revealed himself in the sacred scriptures. That's where you learn about him. That's where he shows himself, not as man naturally imagine him to be. You know, by nature, we're all born idolaters. God is an infinite spiritual being, the heaven of heavens. He fills them. All idols, though, and all images are born and crafted because of the sin-distorted imagination of fallen men. And what do we do? We make God in our image. And it's a grotesque misrepresentation of who God is. I don't learn of God by a verse here and a verse there, but I learn of Him by the total revelation of Him and His Word, and He fills this book. I don't come, and I can't come to the Scriptures and treat it like a buffet kind of a lunch, where I take a little bit here and a little bit there, and I don't like anything there in between, so I move over and take something else there, and so I have a piecemeal collection, and I'm forming those little bits together and saying, that's God. No, I have to take Him as He is revealed in His totality through all of the book of God, and you will find there is no inconsistency in the presentation of God in this holy book. 
In the Bible, God is a supreme sovereign with the right, the ability, and the will to be that. He is ineffably holy. He is almighty. He is inflexibly just. And yet he's abounding in grace and mercy. Praise God he is to poor fallen sinners like us. And he shows that mercy through Jesus Christ. And as we sit in this building today or any time we come to a service where God is honored, it's a privilege to have His Word delivered to us, a privilege to have God's messengers, people saved by grace themselves, carry His Word to our souls through the preaching of the gospel. It's a privilege to have gospel churches to attend, and it's a sad thing. When so many huge buildings built to the glory of God are just closing down rapid fire all around us, but it's a privilege to have places to attend where God meets and speaks to sinners and allows Himself to be worshipped by men. What a privilege that is. The revelation we have of God in creation and in providence, it makes men responsible but the knowledge of God by which sinners are saved and they have eternal life, that knowledge comes through Jesus Christ. Scriptures that tell us that, John 1, 1 to 3, John 1, 14, John 1, 16 to 18, John 17 and 3, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and many, many others. You see, the Lord Jesus himself is the very center of this book. He's the incarnate Word of whom the written Word speaks beginning to end. He's the sum of all of God's purposes for this world. And by the way, they'll tell you bravely the world came about by a big bang. Note they'll also confess, but we don't know why. We don't know the purpose behind it all. Read their literature. That's what they're saying. We cannot tell you the purpose. Well, the Bible tells us It came about by the creative genius of God, and He has a purpose to give Christ glory and honor and a people for His name to redeem them out of lost humanity and ultimately present them a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, on His second coming unto the Father in glory. We know who planned the universe, and we know His purpose in planning this universe. And my obligation is, find out who He is. Find out what He has done. Have you heard the story of the cross where Jesus bled and died? That's so central. Find out what He requires of you. And He requires, what does He require of me? To repent of my sin. Repentance. How was that the keynote of the evangelist message again and again and again? And we hardly hear it nowadays. Repentance of sin. That's what he requires and reliance upon his sacrifice. Not on our works, not on anything that we are conceiving or doing, but depending entirely on what Christ has done for us. Does God exist? Absolutely. Does God exist? Eternally. Does God exist? Powerfully. Now, what are you and I going to do about it? That's the challenge.